Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Last week, AJC announced a brand new initiative aimed at reaffirming the transatlantic partnership. In a full-page ad in the New York Times, former world leaders, including giants of diplomacy like Vice President Joe Biden, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, and Speaker of the House John Boehner, signed an AJC-crafted bipartisan statement reaffirming the vital relationship between the U.S., Canada, and Europe, and recommitting themselves to the values that bind liberal democracies the world over. We'll hear more about this initiative in the second half of this week's episode. Another part of AJC's focus on the U.S.-European relationship, however, has been the -the on-the-ground work of our European offices. Just last month, AJC Paris hosted a timely and crucial conference which they named Les Cerceaux, or The Wake-Up Call. The event featured policymakers, academics, and journalists who headlined sessions on anti-Semitism, the refugee crisis, human rights, and democratic values. Speakers at the event included prominent public figures from both sides of the Atlantic, including French intellectual Bernard-Henri Lévy, EU coordinator for combating anti-Semitism Katerina von Schnurbein, and today's guest on AJC Passport, journalist and writer Jamie Kerchik who is currently a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You spoke recently at AJC Paris's Le Cerceau conference, which was a rallying cry in defense of the transatlantic partnership. Avid students of American history will recall the significance of the Atlantic Charter. That was the document devised by Roosevelt and Churchill laying out their war aims and the post-war world that they hoped to build. But, Jamie, why does the transatlantic relationship matter today when the world is not at war? Well, I think the transatlantic relationship is the real uh, engine or the motor, you could say, of uh, the global democracies and the global um, democratic powers, the United States, Canada, on this side of the Atlantic, and its allies in Europe. And Europe is um, the, you know, the largest collection of democracies in the world, and you have that in the, in the European Union. And it's, um, you know, with, with India, obviously, being the largest democracy in the world um, as one country, but in terms of the collection of countries, they're really centered in Europe and um, what they've accomplished together, what, what they've done together in the 70 years since uh, World War II is, is really incredible when you think about basically human history up to that point. It was basically, you know, one long slog of, of wars and conflict and, and genocide and horror. Um, the period since that obviously hasn't been perfect. There's been certainly plenty of war and suffering, but it's at the same time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have lived in, a, in another period of, of human history, and that's because of the alliances that were formed between the United States and its allies in Europe, and we see that in the the form of NATO, which is a security partnership. We see it in the form of the EU, which is um, the collection of, of democratic countries in Europe that used that used to be at, at war for most of their existence. 
and they've um, encouraged stability and prosperity for their people, and they've um, exported stability and, and, and prosperity as well. Um, so I, I really think that the, the transatlantic alliance is the kind of the, 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 the hinge upon which the um, real sort of stability of, of the world depends. And that alliance, and by extension that stability, is in peril right now. Why is that? So I would say that there are external and internal threats to the transatlantic relationship. Um, there's the major external one is Russia, which is trying to reassert a, a sphere of influence in Central and Eastern Europe. And it's been doing that for really, you could say, since 2007, I would say, when Vladimir Putin gave a very aggressive speech at the Munich Security Conference, essentially announcing to the world that Russia was going to return as a, as a great power and that it wasn't content um, with the post-Cold War settlements. And we've seen the, uh, the violent territorial annexation of uh, Crimea, which is the first such territorial annexation on the European continent since World War II. It had previously invaded and occupied Georgia, uh, launched cyber attacks against uh, Estonia, and has been meddling in the domestic politics of, of Western countries for years. Uh, it's been doing that in European countries for um, quite a long time now, but really came as a shock to many people to see them do it in 2016 in our own election. And the purpose of this is to you know, divide the uh, Atlantic Alliance among ourselves and to also divide America from Europe to break that link between the United States and its European allies. And then we also see internal threats to the um, transatlantic alliance and the liberal world order that the transatlantic alliance upholds. And we see that from the left and the right. We see someone like Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party in Britain, um, who's basically been a lifelong you know, enemy of the West, of the liberal world order, of the United States, of Israel, of democratic politics, and a lifelong ally of uh, various authoritarian and illiberal political movements, whether it's the IRA or Hamas and Hezbollah or the Soviet Union. Um, we also <clears throat> see it on the right. We see Marine Le Pen in France. Uh, opposes French membership in NATO, very friendly with Vladimir Putin. We see Viktor Orban in Hungary, a right-wing nationalist leader. And there are basically movements scattered across Europe and America that see in Vladimir Putin you know, a strong leader and wish to uh, revert the, uh, basically the world back to some kind of you know, pre-World uh, War II era when countries were more nationalist and not cooperating in the way that they have been. Since, since the end of the Second World War. We have a president today who doesn't believe in multilateralism, or at least that's what his rhetoric would lead you to believe. And in many ways, the Atlantic Charter and the Transatlantic Alliance has been that kind of first best instance of multilateralism. Out of it sprang the UN, um, out of it sprang NATO. What do our domestic politics here in America right now, what impact does that have on the future of the Transatlantic Alliance? I think it's worrying. I think we've seen, um, and really this goes before Donald Trump, I think we saw it with Barack Obama, too, wanting to retrench from the world, wanting to retreat, basically seeing America's role in the world as being um, not very helpful. I think Barack Obama thought that maybe America was, was, was too guilty, too sinful to help the world, whereas Trump has the opposite view. He views the world as too sinful and, and too guilty for you know our involvement, and that America is a sort of pristine power that shouldn't, you know, sully itself in, um, 
you know, spreading democracy and keeping the peace and keeping the world more safe. And I really fear for a world where the United States is less influential and less powerful. And I worry that the domestic political situation in the United States, I see, I see voices on the right in the form of uh, the supporters of Donald Trump. I also see voices on the left as well who, who don't see the value in this liberal world order, who think it's been a waste, who think that the United States should retreat, should play less of a role, who think NATO is a waste, who don't really understand and appreciate the value of alliances. And uh, the United States has been blessed with, you know, a greater alliance system than any power in history. We have more allies, formal alliances with countries than any other country in the world, in world history. If you look at the number of bases we have, military bases, if you look at the number of agreements we have, defense agreements, the extent of our military cooperation, our diplomatic cooperation, it is really quite something to behold. And it took a lot of effort and a lot of wisdom from people after World War II, from Harry Truman, from Dean Acheson, from the people around him, on a bipartisan level, Republicans and Democrats, to invest in these systems of alliances, in these treaties, in these institutions. And I think we really take them for granted. And um, it's, you know, it's been, the, it's been the absence of great power conflict that people don't realize. Uh, they don't realize how precious that is and that Previous to that, you know, we had wars between major world powers, and we've avoided that since World War II. And I think it's largely because of this liberal world order that the United States has constructed and the alliances that it has built. You know, you mentioned a couple of folks earlier on who you feel like are, are internal threats to the transatlantic alliance. For example, a couple of the names you mentioned were, were Jeremy Corbyn on the far left and Marine Le Pen on the far right. And I think the a common thread between those two, perhaps we could say, is that they're both Judaically challenged. Um, <laughs> what is at stake for the Jews, uh, the Jews here in America, the Jews certainly in Europe? What is at stake for the Jews in all of this? Well, I think this, this liberal world order that I've spoken about um, has been great for the Jews. And, and if you just look at, you know, America has been great for the Jews, probably the best country for the Jews in terms of uh, welcoming them and giving them opportunities to become um, successful and to live prosperously and safely. And America has obviously been uh, a, a friend of, of Israel the Jewish state in America has been a, a very strident voice against anti-Semitism. And uh, I think it's very important that Jews um, appreciate that and, and be grateful for the role that America has played. Um, and I think this liberal world order uh, is, is a world in which Jews can um, you know, basically prosper and be safe around the world. And I think if you see declining American influence, if you see the the model that America has supported around the world of liberal, inclusive, pluralistic uh, democracies. If that if that model reverts back to one where we see nationalisms arise, you know, blood and soil nationalism, it doesn't really matter where it is in the world. I can't imagine that being good for Jews or for any minority, uh, whether they're ethnic or racial, religious, uh, sexual minorities. Um, I think you know, inclusive, pluralistic societies uh, are are crucial to all of us, uh, especially Jews. And I think that it is um, the United States and its democratic allies that stand for those values and that promote those values um, around the world. 
You are a leading conservative voice, of course, and yet you famously opposed Donald Trump in the 2016 election, saying that there was nothing conservative about his brand of politics, about his particular stances, about the way that he saw the world. In fact, you said that Hillary Clinton was the authentically conservative candidate. Um, with that in mind and, and thinking about what you've just said about the far left and the far right, which concerns you more, uh, the rising kind of intemperate, unconservative far right or the you know threatening in its own kind of ways far left? I think they're both equally worrisome. I think mean, they both appeal to uh, really base instincts. They are both very tribalistic, you know, uh, racial essentialism in their own ways. Um, I think Donald Trump has clearly, you know, appealed to uh, a kind of white resentment of ethnic minorities. But at the same time, if you just look at these, you know, hearings over the past two weeks on Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court nominee, just the number of times in which I've had to read uh, attacks on him from the left for being a white man, uh, I don't understand why that's relevant his, you know, being a, uh, a Supreme Court nominee, I think both sides have just become obsessed with race to the detriment of everyone in this country. And uh, I really worry that we're not talking to one another as fellow Americans. We're, you know, dividing ourselves into groups based upon our, you know, our religion or ethnic background. And uh, I, this is, to me, a real repudiation of, of the American idea uh, which is that we are a melting pot, that we're not defined by our, exclusively we're not defined by um, any of these sorts of traits, whether it be religion or sexual orientation or, or skin color. Um, and I really wish we could move beyond that. But I think, I think both sides are, frankly, to, to blame. I think perhaps because of your opposition to identity politics, you would not want me to mention as a credential that you are a gay man. You don't believe, I, I think, that a gay man has more right to speak on a certain set of issues than someone who is not gay, but who also has, um, right. you know, well thought through viewpoints on those topics, right. which is why I say that. There have been times throughout President Trump early on in his campaign said that he would be a great friend to the LGBT um, mm. community. Um, and there have been times when that has been borne out and other times where it seems like he's not so committed to that. Most recently, we saw that the role of same-sex partners in mm. uh, in our, our diplomatic community was going to be kind of downgraded. Do you have thoughts on what the state of things is within the Republican Party today for the LGBT community? I think actually that this issue has really become uh, moot. Uh, I think most Americans are on board with what used to be called pejoratively uh, the gay agenda. Um, although, uh, by, by, by which I mean most Americans now support gay marriage, they support equal rights, they actually support non discrimination in terms of employment, which we, we don't have a federal law for that yet, but I, you see overwhelming American support for that. And um, I actually think it's time to call uh, a truce in this aspect of the culture war. Um, I don't see the purpose in, in suing a baker in Colorado who doesn't want to bake a cake for a gay couple. I think living in America uh, means you live with people who disagree with you, and you live in a pluralistic society. And there are many people in this country who have religious objections to same-sex marriage, and I might not agree with them. But I respect their right to hold that view, and I don't see the purpose in uh, harassing them, going after them, singling them out. I think as long as gay people have equal rights, 
then that should be sufficient. Um, I don't think you can expect everyone to, you know, tolerate or approve of uh, homosexuality. These are, you know, millennial-old religious teachings against homosexuality, and we haven't even had gay marriage in this country until 2015. Uh, if you look at the younger generations, they're even more overwhelmingly pro-gay. So uh, I'm actually quite optimistic on this. There's lots of things to be pessimistic about in this country in terms of race relations, in terms of anti-Semitism, in terms of just the political tenor and the way that we talk to one another. When I look at how people view LGBT issues, I actually think it's been probably the most remarkable social change in American history. I mean, race is more of a problem. Race relations, I think, are, are, are more bitter, um, you know, 60 years after the, or 50 years after the Civil Rights Act than, than the, the issue of uh, homosexuality. And that's not to say that there aren't people who suffer for being gay or trans or whatnot, and clearly that's a problem, and we need to um, you know, do all that we can to make a society where, where people are not ashamed for being gay. Um, but I actually am very hopeful that that's changing for the better. Jamie, I want to close this thing a little bit different. In the midst of the Kavanaugh hearings, I think a lot of Americans would be glad to never again hear the word Yale. But you, <laughs> but you love your alma mater, and you've expressed your dismay at the recent issues surrounding free speech at Yale. What exactly has been the problem there, and what are you doing about it? Um, this has been a series of kind of these high-profile events that you've been hearing about on college campuses, you know, regarding um, free speech, intellectual expression, um, beginning in 2015, I would say. Uh, with, an, with an email that the university, that, that, that a professor sent out basically criticizing the university for regulating the Halloween costumes of students. And that resulted in, uh, you know, her and her husband being viciously attacked by students. Um, and I just thought that the response of the administration was, was very poor. And I would like to see um, Yale embrace uh, a greater culture of, of free speech and uh, intellectual debate that you, for instance, see at the University of Chicago, where they have you know zero tolerance for this these kind of mob tactics. Um, so I launched a petition campaign to get on the ballot to be a trustee at Yale, and uh, gathered several thousand signatures. It's uh, unclear at this point whether or not I've actually uh, gotten enough signatures. The, the The process has been not the most transparent, I have to say. <laughs> but I hope I hope to know by the end of this week whether. I got enough signatures from, from alums to, uh, to get on the ballot, so fingers crossed. Well, you launched your campaign with a, a really excellent piece in the Wall Street Journal, which we'll link to in our show notes here on the podcast. Um, wishing you the best of luck with that and uh, thanking you again, Jamie, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Jason Isaacson. AJC Associate Executive Director for Policy and the Managing Director of our Office of Government and International Affairs. Just last week, Jason was instrumental in spearheading AJC's diplomatic marathon at the UN General Assembly, during which AJC officials conducted more than 80 different meetings with visiting presidents, prime ministers, and foreign ministers. Jason has decades of experience promoting transatlantic ties and is here to explain why it's vital that we continue to do so. Jason, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much, Safi. It's always good to be here. Let's start with the transatlantic partnership in general. What is it and why should we care about it? 
Well, the transatlantic partnership, of course, is fundamental to America's security and the security of our allies in Europe and actually the security of the world. Um, it grew out of several um, roots and seeds from the 1940s, from World War II, from the Atlantic Charter of 1941 that was um, agreed to by Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt uh, during the war but before the United States entered the war. And, and then, of course, after the war with the onset of the Cold War, the competition between the West and Soviet Union and its allies and the launching of NATO, over the course of 70 years – um, more than 70 years, the transatlantic partnership, NATO and the West allied in not just security dimensions, but in economic dimensions with a variety of agreements on trade, um, with a variety of efforts by the United States to rebuild Europe after World War II, all of these interconnections, um, interdependencies that sprang up and that strengthened over the course of decades brought us to the world that we have today, to a rules-based international order to security for the United States, to close cooperation between the United States and our European allies, our closest allies um, in terms of global security issues. While imperfect and while there have clearly been instances in which this rules-based order has been violated, has been transgressed, there was Bosnia, there have been other issues elsewhere in the world where people have been slaughtered by great numbers. Nevertheless, um, for the most part, this has been a success story. The European Union has been a success story. Europe, a continent soaked in blood for centuries, has not had that experience for the last 70 years with some exceptions. And we want to preserve it. It's in the United States' interest to preserve it. It's in the interest of minorities, including the Jewish minority in Europe and around the world, to preserve it. It's in the interest of global peace and security to preserve it. And, and yet, over the last several months, we have seen increasingly, on both sides of the Atlantic, questions raised about the value of this partnership, uh, whether it's worth the money that we spend, that America spends, especially on this partnership, um, questions raised by our president, but not just by our president, about whether Europe is bearing its share of the burden of mutual defense. Uh, there has been an acknowledgment by many of our European allies that they haven't sufficiently shared that and they have raised the level of spending that they have committed to over the coming years. But even so, aside from money, um, there's just an increasing questioning on both sides of the Atlantic of the value of this partnership. And we're worried about that questioning. We're worried that it could, little by little, um, dismantle the architecture of security that we depend on, that the world depends on, and not insignificantly that the Jewish minorities of Europe depend on, and the relationship between Europe and Israel depends on. So. We have a big stake in preserving this partnership. That is why over the course of the last couple of months, AJC, which has multiple connections and multiple involvements and engagements with European policymakers and American policymakers, policymakers in other parts of the world as well, uh, we've been reaching out to friends in high places uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, Prime ministers and foreign ministers and secretaries of state and significant members of the United States Congress and policy advisors to presidents and others and found unanimity in support on both sides of the Atlantic in what you might consider the foreign policy establishment, the political establishment of the world, but certainly of the transatlantic space for a reaffirmation of the necessity, the urgency of maintaining this transatlantic partnership. Jason, I, I understand why in 1941 – 
it made sense to divide the world for the U.S. and for Britain, who were busy saving the world at that time, to say, you know, this is our vision for for the post-war world. This is how um, this is how we think, uh, you know, world order should look. But you and I, you know, AJC, we're those globalist Jews that people are always warning about. You know, the world today is flat, to borrow a phrase from Tom Friedman. Why is it right today in 2018 to focus still on the U.S. and Europe and not to include those partners that, you know, we're often working with in the Asia-Pacific region, in Latin America, in Africa? Why is this still a transatlantic moment? Well, I would say that Transatlantic partnership does not preclude transpacific partnership, does not preclude partnership between the United States and the developing world um, by any means. Um, but the, the central guarantor of global peace in the post-World War II era has been this transatlantic partnership. Um, let's strengthen that. Let's maintain that. Let's not let it little by little erode or dissolve while at the same time strengthening the partnership between the United States and other important parts of the world. Some of the same threats that we faced in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, we still face today. Um, the Soviet Union shriveled up and died, but Russia is no less a threat in many ways than the Soviet Union was. Um, other countries that challenge um, our security, our, our elections, our sovereignty, um, our trading relationships – uh, the interests of our allies and, this, and the security of our allies around the world, um, these forces are still out there. And a strong NATO, a strong um, cooperation and friendship um, system between the United States or among the United States and our European allies is essential to pushing back against all of these forces, not to mention the forces of extremism, of terrorism, um, in which the United States has partnered effectively with our European allies in Afghanistan, in pushing back against ISIS and, um, and other terrorist threats that are posed to our country and to our allies. Jason, the reason why someone takes out an ad in the New York Times is because they want people to see what they have to say. Um, and that, uh, of course, was the, the first, uh, perhaps the most prominent platform for this pledge uh, that you organized. Who was our audience for that ad? Who did we want to see this message? Well, the ad that ran in the New York Times on a full page ad in both the U.S. and international editions of the New York Times ran on Wednesday, September 26th, which was right smack in the middle of the week when world leaders gather in New York for the United Nations General Assembly. And we wanted the world to see this statement. We wanted the world to see this affirmation by a cross-section of leaders from Europe and the United States and by a concerned, highly engaged organization, the AJC, which has been in contact with governments around the world for decades on this issue and other issues of concern to the Jewish community. We wanted the world to take note. And if you want the world to take note, one of the most efficient, effective ways and times to do it is smack in the middle of the United Nations General Assembly when 170 or 180 world leaders gather in New York, clog our traffic, but <laughs> meet and read and consult and and by the way, at the same time that they are reading the newspaper and talking to each other, we're talking to them. So while the world was in New York for the UN General Assembly, AJC had more than 85 meetings with world leaders in the course of that uh, week and a half. So the statement was, was put out at that time to capture attention. And 
and it did capture attention. Um, and we have had since the publication of this ad in the in the, in the paper, um, many leaders who have come to us and say we want to we want to sign on as well. It's too late for that ad, but um, we will have other ways of uh, putting out the word that foreign ministers and and prime ministers and senators and congressmen and mayors and governors and corporation executives and other significant players on the world scene will want to associate themselves with this uh, nonpartisan statement. Was there any one particular world leader who we hoped would take note of the somewhat sharp message in the in the statement? Well, I would like to say that um, there are forces on both sides of the Atlantic that push back against what to us is an obvious truth, which is that we are better off, our country is safer, our values are more secure when we work together with our allies. Um, when we don't consistently challenge and alienate our allies. Um, And it is not peculiar to the United States, but it is here and other countries as well that we want to make sure this message is heard. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sevi. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Pickles, good for the Jews? What is it about the combination of cucumbers and brine that is so delicious and also somehow so viscerally Jewish? The very first bite of a simple pickle somehow transports me back to my childhood, living in the tenements of Manhattan's Lower East Side in the early 1900s, despite the fact that by the time I was born in 1991, that was Chinatown. Still, today, you can visit the Pickle Guys or Gus's Pickles and purchase a perfect half-sour pickle or any kind of pickle, really. Half-sour, full-sour dill, salt-and-pepper pickles, or how about pickled onions, pickled tomatoes, or a personal favorite, pickled pineapple. I'm not the only one who feels like I'm time-traveling when I enjoy a pickle. In 2013, the novelist Simon Rich published his incredible four-part pickle story in The New Yorker about Herschel Greenbaum the the turn-of-the-century Jewish immigrant who falls into a pickling vat in Brooklyn and wakes up 100 years later and meets his hipster great-great-grandson. This week brought the welcome news that Hollywood A-lister Seth Rogen would be starring in a film adaptation of that incredible read. At a time when it feels like the whole world is caught in a pickle. Finally, some good pickle news, proving once again that eternal truth. Pickles are good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.